welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, just reminded this morning of uh, when the temple was built by Solomon and they dedicated it and you sent fire down. You sent fire down to consume the sacrifice and you filled the whole place with smoke. And that was to show your presence there among your people in your temple. And we pray, Lord, this morning that as we gather as your temple, as your people, that you would fill us with the Spirit, that you would so move among us that we would know that we had met with the living God, even as they saw the fire and dealt with the smoke and they knew that you were there. We pray, Lord, that you would so work in our lives, that you would so affect us by your word, that we would know that you are here. Lord, we don't need the thoughts and imaginations of, of each other. We don't need just the word, mere words of a man and a message. Lord, we need you. And so as we open your word, we pray, Lord, that you would send the fire, that you would send the smoke, that you would cause us to be altered through an encounter with you. Lord, this is your work. This is your people. This is your temple. We're honored to be a part of it, and we just pray you'd come. Do what you want to do with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series called uh, Why We Love the Church, and we're looking at different metaphors for the church. And so far in this series, we looked at that we love the church because the church is God's bride. He loves her as his bride. That the church is a family, that the church is a pillar of the truth. This morning, we're looking at 1 Peter 2, and we're going to see that the church is a temple. Take a look again at verse 4 with me, 1 Peter 2, 4. And you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are built together as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The answer to this morning, why do we love the church, is we love the church because the church is the temple of God. That's what we see in verse 5 where it says a spiritual house. It's a way of speaking of it being a temple. And the picture in 1 Peter 2 is really cool. It's a picture of a temple. It's a living temple made up of all God's people who have been born again to him, united to that cornerstone who is Jesus. You guys know what a cornerstone is? A cornerstone is 
not just the stone in the corner. It is that, but much more. A cornerstone is that one stone that has the perfect angles and has perfectly level that you lay down first, and then you build the whole building off the angles of that stone. It gives the whole guidance to the whole building. And Christ is that cornerstone. He is the perfect one whose angles shape us as his living temple. Now, the whole idea of a temple might seem irrelevant to you guys. You know, like, I thought we were done with temples, that we weren't doing that anymore. You know, what are they for? Why would I want to be a part of one? But there's a rich theme of the temple throughout Scripture. From the beginning of the book to the end, there's a theme of the temple. And the temple is important, guys, because, because God is important. And the temple has always been the physical place where God meets his people in a unique way so they could worship him. The temple is a physical place where God meets with his people in a unique way so they can worship him. And the first temple was actually in the Garden of Eden. might surprise you guys to think of uh, the Garden of Eden as a temple. But actually, when you, see, when you read Genesis 2 and you see what Eden was like, there, God had made Eden, the Garden of Eden, to mirror his later stone temple in several ways. We know that Eden was a temple in the sense that God met with his people there. He walked with them in the cool of the day. But there's a bunch of other ways the future temple that was in Jerusalem mirrored the Garden of Eden. Both of them were up on a rise, kind of on a mount. You have it in Mount Zion where, where the temple is. But you also have Eden being up on a, a mount. Why do we think that? Because the rivers flowed from Eden. R- rivers flow out of higher elevation to lower elevation. So Adam and Eve actually lived in this kind of garden temple in the mountains. Both places, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem and Eden faced east. Um, in both of them, there was a priest given the job of guarding it and keeping it. It says in Genesis 2.15 that Adam was to guard and keep the temple. Later on, if you read Numbers 3, you'll find that the roles of the priest were the same, to guard and keep it, same Hebrew words. So Adam was called to be like a priest in this temple garden. They were to have fellowship with him. Think of that amazing privilege that they live in the very presence of God in that way, in this garden temple. Sadly, Adam didn't do his priestly duty to keep and guard the temple, as we know. He let the serpent in. He let the serpent in to speak lies in the very place where God was to be worshipped and enjoyed. Adam believed that lie, and he sinned against God. They're then banished. Adam and Eve are banished out of that, that garden temple home of theirs. And they're sent away east out from the presence of God. And you can see that uh, God put a cherubim, a type of angel with a flaming sword, to keep them from coming back into that holy place. Moving on from there, God promised a redeemer. Even as they're being driven out of Eden, they're promised a redeemer who will someday make a way for them to come back into the presence of God. He hints at how that's done by sacrificing animals and taking their skins and covering them over Adam and Eve as if to say, one day someone will die and their blood will cover your sins. Moving on from there, the temple uh, theme continues as God meets with his people. Uh, he meets with Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Hagar and Lot and Jacob. But there's no distinct place to meet. He just kind of appears here and there. There's no distinct like physical place. There's no physical temple presence until when? Until Moses, right? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai once again, kind of a, a mountain temple area, meets with God up there, gets instructions for a tabernacle. The tabernacle was for when they were wandering in the wilderness, they would have God's temple presence, but in a, in a structure that they could take apart. It was made out of wood so they could assemble it and disassemble it as they went. The temple and the tabernacle were both meant to be a place where God would meet with his people in a very particular way. So they wandered through the wilderness carrying this portable temple, this tabernacle. Later when they settle on the land, Solomon has the stone temple built in Jerusalem. 
They put the Ark of the Covenant in there, God's meeting place between uh, him and his people. The temple and the tabernacle, it's interesting, had other echoes of Eden. So both the temple and the tabernacle had inside of them images of fruit and plants to kind of remind of the Garden of Eden. It was inside the temple. Um, inside the temple, there was a lampstand that was reminiscent of the Tree of Life. The temple also contained a reminder of the fall. On that thick curtain that kept people from going into the Holy of Holies, there was embroidered on it a cherubim to remind them of Adam and how he was kept out of the garden by that cherubim with a flaming sword. And a reminder that we could not go into the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could go in there, and he could only go in there once a year, and he could only go in there if he brought blood. Because of our sin, we were blocked off from the very presence of God, just like Adam and Eve were in Eden. Just as Adam failed to work and to keep the garden, Israel actually failed to work and keep the temple. In 586 BC, after years of warning, the Babylonians came and they destroyed the temple. And they drove uh, God's people out of Israel, out east actually, into exile. Uh, The temple was destroyed. The ark was lost. Seventy years later, they come back and they rebuild the temple. But it doesn't have the former glory. Everybody bemoans the fact that it wasn't like it used to be. The Holy of Holies was without the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a real picture, guys, of the temple and how empty it was, how the Lord had departed. But during that time, the prophet Ezekiel gave a vision about God's temple presence returning in a powerful way. In Ezekiel 47, there's this vision that Ezekiel has of the temple. And out of the door of the temple, there's water trickling out of the door, and this water symbolizes God's presence. And the weird thing about this water trickling out is it gets bigger as it goes, which is not the way water normally works. It gets deeper and deeper as it goes, and it goes over the whole world, and wherever it goes, it spreads life, and it gives life to the, to the land. And it's a picture of one day God's presence breaking out of that physical place in Jerusalem and spreading over the whole world. Of course, this biblical theme of the temple is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is that ultimate meeting place between God and man because Jesus is God and man. He's the perfect one to do this. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. John, when he's talking about him in John chapter 1, he says that God came in in Jesus and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt among us is the Greek word tabernacled. That in Jesus Christ, God tabernacled among us. Jesus identified his physical body as the true temple. You guys remember he said to the to the leaders at that time, he said, if you, if you tear down this temple, I will build it up again in three days. He was speaking of his resurrection as the ultimate rebuilding of the temple where God would meet with his people. Jesus fulfilled not only in his person, the temple, but also his purpose. He fulfilled its purpose as well. He caused us to finally be able to go into the Holy of Holies again, right? As the true high priest, he offered the ultimate sacrifice. You remember at his death, that curtain, that heavy curtain that separated people from the Holy of Holies, that inner presence of God, that heavy curtain was ripped from the top down at Jesus' death to show that a way had been made to go into the very presence of God again. The thing that Adam lost for us, Jesus regained for us. This is amazing, right? That we could actually come into the real Holy of Holies, his real presence. Jesus is the true temple. He's made the final sacrifice. He's made the way through. He's he's gone through that cherubim with the flaming sword. Jesus actually went through into the justice of God and was pierced by that flaming sword so that we could enter again into the holy place. Once Jesus had come and been the true sacrifice and the true temple, the, the physical temple didn't have a purpose anymore. 
Within a generation, as Jesus prophesied, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The Romans destroyed it because once the, the, the true temple, Jesus Christ, had come, the shadows were no longer needed. Okay, so that gets us to 1 Peter 2, which tells us that the physical presence of God on earth now is his gathered people, the church. That you all, spirit-filled people, are now the temple of God. 30 years ago, Tasha and I and some friends, we got to tour the, uh, the LDS temple in, uh, in San Diego. So it had just been built. Things kind of wild, right? You drive up the highway and all of a sudden it's like there, you know? And I think they paint it daily to keep it really bright because it's extremely bright. But we got to go inside. We got to put on these little surgical booties, you know? They want to make sure we didn't get the place dirty. And uh, what I hear is they tore the carpet out after we all toured is, uh, to kind of cleanse the place. But... Uh, but anyway, we toured the temple, and what was really interesting about it, I mean, it was fascinating inside, was afterwards there was this display of how in the Old Testament God had always had a temple and all this stuff. And the implication was, we have temples, why don't you? And I didn't really know how to answer that back then. I was like, yeah, it is kind of weird, you know? God's always had this physical temple. The Mormons are saying, like, we have it. Why don't you have one? And the answer is, is that now, since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit dwells in his people so that we are now God's temple presence on earth. Isn't that amazing? It's, like, it's exciting, you know? Every time God's people gather together physically for worship, all of us living stones assemble together as a portable spiritual temple where God dwells. As you gather together, the temple's assembled and God fills this place with the Spirit. So why do we love the church? We love the church because together, the church is the temple of God, the meeting place between God and man. It's a good reason to love the church, right? It's a really high view of the church. And verse 4, if you take a look at it, says that to be a part of the temple of God, you have to be united to Christ. Christ is that cornerstone, right? If we're going to be a part of God's temple, we have to be united by faith to him. But not everybody wants that, okay? You may have noticed. And the reason why not everybody wants to be united to Christ is that Christ is a cornerstone. And we, by nature, tend to have some other cornerstone that we've chosen to build our lives around. That was the case for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Peter here calls them the builders. Jesus said that the, he quoted that same passage about the builders to say that the religious leaders one day would reject him. He prophesied that in Matthew 21. Um, the religious leaders had built their whole religious life in such a way that they didn't have room for Jesus. They didn't have room to add him as their cornerstone, right? Jesus describes their rejection in uh, verse 6, take a look at it. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Jesus is that cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone that God has built his temple on. Remember, I told you that whole story of the temple. God has always planned to build his true temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. But here's the thing. When Jesus arrived, the religious leaders took a look at him as a cornerstone, and he just didn't fit the religious life that they had, so they rejected him. Remember, Jesus isn't just an ordinary stone. He's a cornerstone, and that's significant. Remember, a cornerstone doesn't just sit in the corner of the building. The cornerstone provides all the angles that the building's built after. The cornerstone shapes the entire building. Here's the thing. If Jesus is a cornerstone, you can't just add him to your life that you already have. 
right? You can't just add a cornerstone to a building that you've already built. You either have to tear down the building you have and start over and build it around that cornerstone, or you reject that new cornerstone. There's really no middle ground, is there? Jesus isn't just like another compatible brick that you can kind of like a Lego stick on the side of your life, right? He's either going to be the cornerstone, and he's going to alter your entire life. You're going to tear your life down, and your life's going to be altered completely after him, or you don't have him at all. And it's the same for us, guys. You can't just add Jesus as another piece of your life. You know, living totally how you please, but then just kind of tacking Jesus on, like, like you might tack on a yoga class or a meditation app. With a little bit of spirituality, you just want to hook onto the side of your life. No, to receive Jesus is to receive him as a cornerstone. It's the only kind of stone he can be in your life. You got to tear the whole life down and start over. He goes in place, and your whole life gets defined by him. It's the only way it can be. He's a cornerstone. He either defines your life or you toss him aside. These religious leaders, they took one look at Jesus, the cornerstone, and they found him totally unacceptable. They're like, we're not starting all over. We're not going to change everything we do. So they tossed him aside. And that pattern continues. Verse 4, it calls Jesus, says he's rejected by men. How about you? What does your life say about what you've done with Jesus? You know, is he your cornerstone? There's a way to be able to tell. Or have you rejected him? If he's not a cornerstone, then he's rejected. Because once again, you can't just add a cornerstone off to the side. Have you, like the builders, found Jesus unacceptable? That's what they did. They saw him, they saw their lives, and they said, we can't work with this. This is unacceptable. This, this, is, this person is not worth rebuilding my life around, right? What would it mean for you to alter your life to have this cornerstone? It might mean something like lifelong singleness to be faithful to him, or a loss of business profits because you have to change some things, or it might be giving up an addiction, or humbling yourself, or losing a particular romantic interest, or giving up gossip, or judging might be losing your kind of isolated, selfish way of living, right? might be giving up a grudge. You know, it takes real alteration. Like, like the builders, you have to look at Jesus and then look at your life, and you have to decide, is he worth being my cornerstone? And if you've done that, if you kind of looked at Jesus and you just thought, man, this is too many changes, this is too much, that, that this is too big of a cost, and you've rejected him like the builders, I would just say, take another look, guys. God finds Jesus a precious and chosen cornerstone. That's God's opinion of him. He's the perfect cornerstone. Jesus is the stone who, was, who chose to be rejected so you could be accepted, right? That's why he's precious. That's why he's chosen. In verse 8, in the second half, it says that the builders stumbled. These are the religious leaders. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Here's the interesting thing. The builder's rejection of Jesus wasn't a hindrance of God's plan. It was God's plan. It wasn't like Jesus comes, religious leaders don't want him. It's like, oh, man, didn't see that coming. What a shame. No, it was God's plan. Jesus said it this way. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and rise again on the third day. Why? Jesus had to be rejected so you could be accepted. Jesus' rejection was God's plan to forgive you. He wasn't just rejected by Herod and Caiaphas and Pilate. Jesus himself was rejected by God himself. Isaiah 53 puts it this way, that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom they hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So not just rejected by men, but actually rejected by God because he was bearing the sins, our sins on himself. And he took the rejection we deserve for our sins so that we could get his acceptance. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that make him so worthy of taking as your cornerstone? I mean, he's a stone willing to be rejected. Here's a powerful thing. That psalm that Peter quotes here, it's Psalm 118, where he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That psalm was always traditionally sung by the Levites at Passover as the lambs were being slaughtered. Isn't that amazing? On the cross, Jesus took the rejection our sins deserve so that we could get the acceptance he deserves. That's the gospel. Or as 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sakes he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's amazing news. And Jesus chose to do this. And now by uniting with Christ, we share his holiness. We share his holiness just like, to use the imagery Peter has here, just like a stone that gets united to a holy temple itself becomes holy. By becoming united to Christ by faith, you become holy. You share in his holiness. Isn't that amazing? Don't you see? Jesus is better than whatever cornerstone you've traded him for. Really take another look. Really take another look at the reasons in your life that you don't want to surrender to Jesus as your cornerstone. Guys, he's worth the demo. He's worth the rebuild. And what's amazing is, is that he himself will do the demo and the rebuild for you if you come to him. Notice verse 4. It says that Jesus is a living stone. This reminds us that Jesus didn't stay dead at the cross. He, three days later, rose from the dead. He's got this resurrection life, which he will not only raise us on the final day, but he'll raise you spiritually now. That kind of resurrection power he will use to transform your life. He will take care of the cornerstone rebuilding of your life, setting it in the pattern of him. He will do that. And I just like to imagine, like with this whole living stone thing, that, that imagine Jesus is like this, imagine a, a temple and the cornerstone is like glowing with life. Each new brick that's added, each new stone that's added lights up with the same life. That His life comes into us as we, as we connect with him. He brings us to life. And that's a great image too, right? Because before we were saved, we were all like dead, cold stone. But we come to him and there's this new life. And what you'll find if you come to Jesus and you go like, okay, well, I don't know how my life's going to get like rebuilt around Jesus and everything's going to change. I have no idea how I can do that. You can't, by the way. Jesus can. But how's it going to happen? And you do it and you trust in him. What you're going to find is you're going to find that there's a life in you that you can't explain. Things start changing. You have new desires. You have new affections. You have new, you know, love for Jesus. And you're like, I don't know where this is coming from. We do. It's coming from Jesus. It's Jesus' life in you. He will transform you. Trust in Christ. Give him your life. Come to him as a cornerstone. He's going to reshape you. That's what cornerstones do. That's what he does. So why do we love the church? The church is God's temple. United to Christ, we're built together as, as God's temple. And to be united to this temple, we, we not only get united to Christ, but what this passage shows us, this image of a temple being built, is we get united to one another. And this is a real challenge, guys, for us because we live in a very individualistic culture. We kind of understand, like, Jesus Cornerstone, I'll hook to him. It's me and Jesus. That's all I need. 
Not so fast, right? This is we're being built together into a temple, right? We're being built together. We can see that in verse, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Notice that that new identity you have in Christ, it's a collective identity. Individuals can't be any of these things, okay? You can't be a one-person race, okay? That would be odd. You can't be a, by yourself a royal priesthood, okay? These are collective identities. This is hard for us to get because we've been drilled in. You're an individual. You're an individual. You know, what everybody else is doing doesn't matter to you. But God thinks of us with a collective identity. You can't be a single holy nation, okay? It would be super weird. You can't be a people for his possession. You are one people, but you can't be a people, okay? You're not a one-person people unless there's a real problem. You might want to get that checked out. These are a collective identity, okay? This is what we are together as a church. We are together God's temple. And we've been talking lately a lot about church membership. The thing about church membership is when you join a church, when you become a part of a church, you're committing to be built together with other people. And a lot of you have gotten this for years. This is the way you live and everything like that. But as new people come to the church, as new people that come to Christ, this is one thing we have to emphasize with them, is you're actually not just united to the cornerstone, but you're being built together as a a people. These living stones in, in a temple, it implies deep community, right? It implies interconnectedness. It implies interdependence. When you're part of a church, you're committed to growing together. And what's really cool is is as other people in the body become more aligned to the cornerstone, their lives are more and more directed by Christ. Yours does as well, because we're connected together. Like each person's growth in Christ's likeness affects the rest of us. It's a beautiful thing. We grow together in this living temple. Every living stone's progress makes the rest of us stronger or weaker if, if we go the other way. This kind of, kind of collectivist way of thinking is so countercultural to our individualistic way of thinking. But this kind of living stones being built together is something that you can only live out in the deep community of a local church. And so when you become a member of a church, you're saying, I'm all in for that. And the rest of us are saying, yes, that's great. We want to connect with you. We want to live this out with you. Notice all these terms also are terms from the Old Testament. Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These are all terms that were used of Israel in the Old Testament, especially in Exodus 19 think, okay, this is interesting, you know? This is to Jews and Gentiles. This is to the church generally. What's going on here? Well, the the temple that God has always been building throughout all of time as he's been bringing more and more people to Christ includes all of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, Jew, Gentile, everyone united to Christ being built up into this temple that he's building over time. What God has been building since the beginning. One temple, one people, united around the one cornerstone. Isn't that awesome? Let's look at the collective identity we have here. First, he says that we're a chosen race. This reminds us of God's love for us and choosing us out of all the nations and races of the world and making us into like a new humanity is what he's doing here. And notice that, that we're a chosen race, right? That God's choice of us is entirely by grace. You think about like, how did I get here? You ever wonder that? You ever think back to your life and you think, how did I end up a Christian? How did I end up in church? How did I end up caring about these things? I lived so much of my life another way, and now I'm so compelled to live a different way. And its reason is, is it's God's grace in choosing you. God's grace was in choosing Israel, too. In Deuteronomy 7, 
God's people have this question of like, why us? It's a great question. It's a question we should ask. Why us? Why you guys? I have no idea. Let me read it. Let's see. Deuteronomy 7 says this. This is God's answer to his people for why he chose them. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You say, wow, why is that? Out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. Why? And then he answers, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord had set his love on you and chosen you, because you were the fewest of all people. And then here's the answer. This is, why did God love and choose Israel? Why does God love and choose us? Here's the answer. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So the answer, if you didn't follow it, is why did he love and choose us? And he says, I loved you because I loved you. And you think, that doesn't seem to be an answer. But you know what? That is the most satisfying answer for why God chose you of any answer you could possibly have. That he just loves us because he loved us. And he keeps his promises. That's the answer. I love you because I love you and I keep my promises. That's the answer. And it's so reassuring, guys. Why, Christian, why does God love you? He loves you because he loves you and he keeps his promises. The answer is not like, you guys have really been killing it out there. That's the reason. You know? It's like, God, why do you love me? Hey, you've been really killing it out there. You've been doing a great job, and you really kind of cleaned up your act, and man, I love that. That's not the answer. What's the answer? I love you because I love you. Because realize you can't mess that up. How are you going to mess that up? Because the thing is, with God's love, our love, sadly, most of the time, 99% of the time, is we see something lovely in another person, and we love them. That's not the way God's love is. He doesn't see anything lovely in us that makes him love us. The love comes from within. It's from a deep well of grace and love in his heart that he saw us and just went like, man, I love these people, and I'm not going to stop. Isn't that amazing? He loves you because he loves you. His love purely comes from him. It's not because you made yourself lovable. Now, his love does make you lovable. I find you guys lovable. And the reason is God's love makes you lovable, right? But he doesn't love you because you're lovable. He loves us purely out of grace. He also says we're a royal priesthood. This is really cool because, so we're a royal priesthood. The implication here is that we priests have special access to God. You, as a Christian, have special access to God that the lost world does not have. You have special access to God through Christ. We mediate God's presence to the world. No pressure, right? But you have an access to God. You have an access to God in prayer. You have an access to God in relationship. And you use your access for the benefit of the lost, right? Your neighbors and stuff like that. You're the priest on the neighborhood. You're the one that can come before God and and, and pray for their souls and, and serve them through Christ. And we also offer them. We say, hey, this is an exclusive. You can have this if you come to Christ. And we offer them that same access. We're a holy nation. What does that point out? We are God's visible people. We are his visible people gathered together to, to, to show what his nation is like, what his kingdom is like. We're kingdom representatives. And that's part of the reason, why, guys, that it's so important that the church gather, you know, for a time. We did some things online. We had to. But the thing is, the church is not an online gathering. The church is a physical gathering you can see because the church is a holy nation. It's a visible representation of God. When we gather together, guys, this gathering of God's people, of those who are in God's kingdom, 
is like an embassy, right? An embassy is a pocket of a nation in another nation. So we are a pocket of the kingdom of God, which is going to come fully when Christ returns. Every church as they gather is an embassy where people of this world can learn about what it would take you know, to come into his kingdom. They would hear the gospel and know how to join into his kingdom. They would be able to interact something with kingdom life. Not perfect, but it's real. So we're a holy nation. This is our political identity, right? Is the kingdom of God. We are his possession. This is so cool. He says we're a people for his own possession. What does this point to? This points to his tender care. This is something we need to hear because First Peter, the book this is in, ton of suffering, tons of suffering, just like life has a ton of suffering. And yet in it, we're assured that we're a people for his own possession. We're a people that he tenderly cares for. I was so moved last week by JC's call to worship. He did it from Isaiah 43. And uh, it just spoke to me of God's care, that we're his people and he tenderly cares for us. Isaiah 43 says this, But now thus saith the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Isn't that amazing? It's treasured people. So that's our collective identity. We are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. So that's our collective identity. We also have a collective purpose. What do we do as God's temple? What is our, our purpose? What do we do as we assemble as God's temple? We do temple things, actually, it turns out. We offer sacrifices and worship. Take a look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. This is so amazing, this, what God's telling us about what the church is, what we are as we gather. That as we gather together and we pray and we sing, and we, uh, we hear preaching, and we take communion, and we fellowship, and we serve one another. Every way in which we love and serve each other, and we, we serve God through it, these are spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Isn't that amazing? Do you think that way when you come to church? When you come as you gather with God's people, are you thinking like, I am gathering together as God's temple where there's spiritual sacrifices being offered that are acceptable to God? Isn't that amazing? You think like, I don't think anything we do is like on that level. Do you think that? Notice how they're acceptable to God. He says, through Jesus Christ. That through Christ, just our meager offerings of worship and communion and the way we care for one another as we gather, God sees that covered in Christ's grace and it's something that he accepts as spiritual sacrifice. Like he loves this. You guys realize he loves this? He loves when his people gather together as his temple. He loves this. Isn't that great? Doesn't that seem like an amazing motive for that? You know, when we think about a worship service, who's the service for? Have you ever wondered? Who's the service for? Service is for God, right? 
This is something where we actually are offering him spiritual sacrifice. Not to in any way earn anything with God. Jesus took care of that. We already talked about He made that final sacrifice. But that as we do it out of hearts of gratitude, God himself is pleased with it. Isn't that amazing? That he'd be pleased with this? That this would matter to him? Everything in it is something that, that he loves. So that's kind of a, a ministry to, to God as we serve him as a, as a temple. But we also have a ministry to our neighbors. Look at verse 9. It says that we as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, what do we do? That you may, this is really cool, so this is a purpose of us as we gather as, as God's temple, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that a cool role that we have as a church? That we get to proclaim the excellencies of God. As we gather, we're here to do that. We're here to do that to each other, as we gather, that all of us would, to each other, as we sing, as we talk to one another, we're proclaiming God's excellencies to one another, but we're also proclaiming it to the community, right? The fact that we're gathered here together and we're, we're communicating His excellencies. Our service is crafted, our time is crafted, so that hopefully you would leave and you would, as you get in your car, you'd think, God is excellent. <laughs> he has so many excellencies. Like, that was another excellency I didn't know He had. Like, that's what we do as we gather, this is a ministry we have to proclaim his excellencies. And, and there was a time, and you guys were there, uh, during the pandemic when it was very difficult to gather. <laughs> there were all sorts of difficulties given to us. We were in a school, another school. We immediately, like on a Thursday, found out we couldn't meet that Sunday. You know, it's not that we didn't want to meet, that we couldn't meet. There was nowhere to meet. And it took a long time to find somewhere else to meet and all these things, and there were all sorts of difficulties involved with, with meeting. And I'll tell you, there were many times, I think, when all of us, what, the one thing that kept us going is that Christ deserves to be proclaimed publicly. Doesn't he? He deserves to be proclaimed publicly. Not just online, not just a few people at home, but as God's people gathered as his temple proclaiming him publicly. That's what we do. And that adds a lot of value. Well, it shows you the true value of what we're doing here. When you guys got yourselves up and you got your carcass into the car and you got your kids in there and you, you drove them here and you faced all kinds of adversity getting here. And then you got here with God's people and then you tried to kind of dust off your soul so that you could actually engage with people. You know, maybe you drank some coffee or you did whatever. You kind of slapped yourself a little bit. And then you were like, okay, I need to focus. I need to engage with people here. What you were doing is you were assembling the temple of God, right? It's not so much this stuff. This is important as well. It's these people assembling as the temple of God, you know? And as a member of a church, that's what you're agreeing to do is to not forsake this great gathering, to gather with us on Sunday, to assemble the temple of God, to offer spiritual sacrifices, and to proclaim his excellencies, you know? And it's so easy, too. It's so easy to proclaim his excellencies. He has so many of them. Have you noticed that? I mean, notice how we can talk about Jesus every week and there's some new excellency that he has. That's what we do together. So why do we love the church? It's the temple of God, together fulfilling God's temple purposes on earth. And I think you'd agree with me, it is an honor to be a living stone in God's temple. So let's pray. Father, even as we next, as we take communion, as we offer you songs of worship, as we fellowship together afterwards, we just thank you that you have made the church not just some sort of gathering we decided to have, not just some sort of religious group, but this is your temple on earth. 
your people gather together to offer spiritual sacrifices and proclaim your excellencies. And we just pray, Lord, that you would assist us to do that week after week as we gather, Lord. We desire to to live out that great purpose you have for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us by grace as your people, that you have given us access as priests to you, that we could you know, use that access for other people, that we could point them to you and, and guide them how to find you. And we thank you that you made us a holy nation, that we are your kingdom people. We pray, Lord, that our relationships together as a church would, would look like the kingdom of God when it fully comes. And we thank you, Lord, that we are your treasured people, that you look over the whole world and you see us in a special way as, as a parent sees their own kids in a, in a mob of kids. That you see us, that you care, that you're with us. We thank you, Lord, for all this. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has included us into your family, who's made us your people, who's given us his righteousness and his life. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.